Hi, I'm Stephen Furr. I'm the developmental minister of this church, and today we have a guest minister, and it's a great pleasure of mine to be able to introduce him to you, but many of you know him much better than me, uh, and that is Matthew Johnson, who grew up a member of this church and whom I've known now since 2003 when he came uh, right out of seminary to Colorado Springs. I was the minister in Santa Fe, so he's really just up the front range of 400 miles, and uh, he, or maybe only 300 and so. Anyway, but he was such a breath of fresh air and a wonderful colleague, and I've enjoyed running him in, running into him at general assemblies and so on, and watched his career uh, ascend. And not at all surprisingly, he's now the minister in Rockford, Illinois. And uh, Matthew Johnson, welcome back to East Shore. Thanks, Stephen. It is a pleasure to be back with you. The year is 1995. The place, Spokane. I am 18. It is my first time attending the Unitarian Universalist General Assembly, our annual meeting of ministers and lay delegates who gather for five days at the end of June each year to go to workshops and attend worship, have business sessions where we vote on this and that, elect officers and see our friends and make new ones. I grew up as a Unitarian Universalist, well, there, at East Shore, in the sanctuary with Leon and Barbara and Peter and Holly House with the youth group on that holy ground. So when GA was in Spokane that year, it was easy to attend, to worship with thousands of other Unitarian Universalists, to go to the How Do You Become a Minister workshop, to wander the exhibit hall. It was all great. I've been to almost all of them since. But one particular memory stood out back from 1995. I sat in the back of the main session hall, plenary, they called it, while the delegates debated and then voted on adding the sixth source, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions which celebrate the sacred circle of life and instruct us to live in harmony with the rhythms of nature. There were, at that point, five, direct experience of mystery and wonder, teachings of prophets, wisdom from the world's religions, Jewish and Christian teachings about love, and humanist teachings about reason and science. And now this new one, approved there by vote, spiritual teachings of earth-centered traditions. I was really struck by it. We debated, did earth-centered traditions represent a strong enough part of who we are, that they deserved its own call-out, like Christian and Jewish teachings and humanist teachings, or was it included in the world religions part and didn't need its own thing? We decided it was important enough to be named, so we did. That was the last time we made any major change to the principles or sources. The principles and sources are in the bylaws of the Unitarian Universalist Association, Article 2 of our bylaws. The sources say where we get our religious ideas. The principles say what we affirm and promote, our statement of values, really. But they are not a creed. We don't have a creed. And frankly, we've grown too attached to them. The principles, I mean. 
There was a different version from 1961 when Unitarians and Universalists merged until 1984, when the current version was mostly written. They were similar, but different, and not as big of a deal in our congregations. Before that, before 1961, a lot of folks used the 1887 statement written by William Channing Gannett, who served our church in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, as our explanation of what mattered to us. Or they used the 1819 sermon by William Elderly Channing. There's no relation between William Channing Gannett and William Elderly Channing. They just liked each other. They use that. I don't preach on the seven principles that much here at the congregation I serve, much less than some of my colleagues. I'm sort of meh about them, to be truthful. So I was thrilled when a more serious movement to amend them gained steam in the last few years. It's time. It's time to refresh and renew and recast them. A universalist minister was once asked where a universalist stood on some particular question. This was more than 100 years ago. And he said, universalists don't stand, we move. I love this. Both because he unintentionally challenged the ableist language of standing. Because he made clear that ours is not a fixed creed, but a living tradition. Indeed, what's the name of our gray hymnal, right? Singing the living tradition. We move. The movement to amend our bylaws came and to amend our principles and sources came in two forms. First, our bylaws calls for us to review and amend them every 15 years. And it has been 37 years since we really made a major change and 26 years since that sixth source was added. So the board of the National UUA created an Article 2 study commission to work on and propose a new version. They charge them to be creative, rethink the form, don't be boxed in, doesn't have to be seven, but focus, they said, on the concept of love as the organizing principle of the document they will create. The second thing that happened was that a group of folks proposed an eighth principle, something they felt was missing from the first seven to make our commitments to anti-racism and beloved community explicit. The congregation I serve endorsed the spirit of this eighth principle back at our annual meeting in June. And I know that you just mentioned in the land acknowledgement that you all have an eighth principle team doing this kind of work there at East Shore. So we, so those things are happening. The article two study commission includes the main author of the eighth principle. She's a member of the commission. So we can be confident that these two efforts are going to come together into one thing. Now, this whole conversation that we're having about who are we, how do we say who we are going forward, prompted one of our members here in Rockford who won the right to select a sermon topic in last fall's auction here at the church to select the ninth principle as his theme. What's missing, he asked me to opine on. What would I add? If we add the eighth, what would be the ninth? I thought this was a great question. And it got me thinking for quite a while. And I, so I talked to my folks about this and uh, my mom heard that sermon and thought, yeah, I want you to say this for Ishwar because I think they'll enjoy it too. So here's what I came up with after thinking about it for a while. What would be the ninth principle? And I think we're in the position where we can put this in the chat. The power of courageous love, which bids us to open our hearts, be faithful to these values and hold ourselves and others to account for our efforts to live in accordance with these principles. 
So just for a moment, I want to talk about what this means, why I made those choices, and then I want to talk about why I think we need it, why it matters. So the power of courageous love, reaching out, leaning on each other, being there for each other, being people of courage, heart, be of good heart, have courage, the love that calls us on, a deeper justice built by our courageous choice, as the song puts it. That courageous love calls us to do three things, as I've named them here. First, to open our hearts, to feel, to be moved by empathy, by wonder and joy, to have open hearts, which, let's be clear, requires courage. Feeling is hard. It's overwhelming. Open hearts are super hard. Now, I want to be really clear that this does not mean that we don't set boundaries or take care of our energy level. But it does mean that courageous love, not fear, should motivate us to have open and caring hearts for ourselves and for others. The second thing I'm naming here is that we have to be faithful to these values. We've got great values, respect and freedom and equity and justice and all that jazz. Wonderful. But articulating them is just the first step. We have to have the courage to make it so, to make it so. And that's what the anthem calls us to, right? And the anthem talks about, you know, God make it so. But our theology says that the only hands there are our hands, right? We're the incarnation. Not we're not alone in that in the spirit of life. And we gotta we gotta make it so. We gotta be part of that effort, not by ourselves alone, but part of it. We have a dream of the world we wish to live in and bequeath to our descendants. But you gotta wake up from the dream and get to work. Do the work. Now, the third thing I'm naming here is that we have to hold ourselves and others accountable for our efforts. It's just essential that we recover our sense that we are accountable to live in accord with our values and and not just ourselves, but each other. To be a Unitarian Universalist, in other words, is not to say, I feel this way about how things should be, but to take action to make that dream of a better world real in this world and in your own life, to make it so. Now, I'm not on the Article 2 Study Commission, and my exact wording isn't the point. Not that I haven't already sent the commission a copy of the sermon. I have. But the point I want to make to you today is to encourage, encourage, give heart, courageous love, to encourage you to find ways to live out your faith. And hold yourself accountable to our principles and our values. To be the change you wish to see. And let the fire of commitment burn in you and to respond to it. Reverend Elizabeth Wynn's words about sacrifice and how there's no easy way rings very true to me. Her last line really hit home and I saw in the chat it hit home with some of you too. Are we willing to live our lives in the shape of what is being asked? not hope that what we are asked to do will fit the shape of our lives? It's a big question. Like the ways to be a citizen, there are a lot of practical ways to live out our covenant, to make the principles real in your life and make the values come alive in you. But you need, we all need to make these values real. A. Powell Davies, who preached at All Souls Unitarian Church in D.C. for many years, was known to ask, 
if you were put on trial as a Unitarian, would there be enough evidence to convict you? Would there be? My principle, my proposal for a ninth principle makes clear that we must live our faith, make it so, make it so, be the change, do the work, shape our lives around our values, not hope our values fit into our lives. The hard news is that this is hard. It's like swimming upstream in a current, a society that wants everything to be expedient and efficient, that says, buy what we tell you and don't make a fuss. It's hard too because it means disappointing people. It means not fitting into expectations. It means saying, no, I'm sorry, I can't do that. Or no, that's not funny. Or no, I'm sorry, I won't. That's the hard news. The good news is twofold. First, since ethics is mostly about habit and community, the more we do it, And the more we surround ourselves with people who share these values, cast our lot with them, well, the easier it gets. Don't try this alone is what I'm saying. We're here for each other, to puzzle it through together, to talk together, to wonder and experiment together. The second good news is that living in accord with your values gives the greatest sense of meaning and joy and purpose that you will ever find. Living in accord with your conscience, treating others with respect and yourself too, you also are deserving of respect. Working for peace and justice and freedom, not just for yourself, but for everyone. Doing this work, it's glorious. It really is. It's the work that matters. It's life-giving. That's why we're here, right? Unitarians and Universalists were named after creeds, which is a great irony because we don't have a creed. Instead, what we have is an invitation to ethical living. Some religions will say that you're doing it right if you do the right set of rituals. Others will tell you that if you're you're good to go if you believe the right things. If ethical living flows from that ritual or that belief, all the better. But the point for those religions is either the ritual or the belief. That is not the way we think about it. We hold that the point of religious, of the religious life is ethical living, character, justice, love, wonder, compassion. The rituals and beliefs might help with that, which is great. But the point is the living. So we should say so. In the new version of Article 2, I don't want it to say just we affirm the power of love or even we affirm the power of courageous love. I don't want it to say We will try to treat people with respect, the search for truth and care for the earth, or however they might put it. They'll be good with words. But I want them to say that we are called to be courageous in our action, in our doing, and in our living, and are accountable for these commitments, meaning that our co-religionists, our community, can call upon us, must call upon us to do better when we don't do well enough. When I tell someone, which I have the occasion to tell people this more often than I like, but when I tell someone, I think Unitarian Universalism calls you to shift how you are living, to change how you're living, I want that person to say, yeah, help me do that. Not Unitarian Universalism means you can't tell me what to do. I hate that phrase. 
we're not three-year-olds, so let's not act like it. Our principles need to be lived. Of course, we need grace when we don't get there, which we won't always get there. Of course not. And then we dust ourselves off and we keep at it, trying and reaching. These are aspirations. These are big asks. But we are bid to try to live them, to be courageous, to be bold in our living, to go the hard way. There's no other way. This is the way. So may we be blessed with this courageous love. May we be united and accountable and responsible to and for each other. May we be faithful in our living to show to the world a new humanity, a new way to go boldly and to make it so.